Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Regular listeners know that I'm a big fan of mountain biking at night, and having a reliable bright light is crucial. Glowworm is a mountain bike light brand founded almost a decade ago by two mountain bikers in New Zealand. Today, the company offers some of the most customizable, highest quality bike lights on the market. Glowworm's complete line of lights start at 1,200 lumens and range up to a blinding 3,400 lumens, all at reasonable prices. There are a few things Glowworm does differently that makes their lights unique and highly customizable. The optics can be swapped at home depending on the types of trails you ride, and their lights use standard GoPro style and quarter turn mounts. Many of the Glowworm lights work with a bar-mounted remote, which can be used to control one or more of their lights at once. Right now, Glowworm is offering 15% off all light systems on their website with the coupon code SINGLETRACKS2020. Go to glowwormlights.co.nz. That's G-L-O-W-O-R-M-L-I-T-E-S dot co dot N-Z. Or click the link in the show notes to take advantage of this offer. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today Matt and Jero and I are going to be talking about the mountain bike news. And this is something that we want to do semi-regularly, uh, just to have a little time to talk about what's been going on in mountain biking, sort of provide a little more in-depth uh, coverage and sort of some of our opinions and what we're hearing uh, outside of the stories that we actually write. Um, and so I want to kick this episode off uh, by talking about something that Matt brought up from uh, the recent Specialized Stump Jumper Evo launch video. And in that video, they sort of themed it around this idea that like mountain biking is in this sort of golden age right now in 2020. And I wanted to hear what you guys have to say about that. Matt, do you think think we're in a golden age of mountain biking right now? No, not exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, I, I think the video is like outstanding, and yeah, I mean, it was really real or really well done with it. I mean, the whole idea is it centered around like Matt Hunter and Maddie Miles. I, I think it's like specialized that finds them like thirty years down the line. They're like hiding out in the woods and stuff, and then. <laughs> they recap on what it was like riding this new bike and having like the best trails around in this current day and age. So yeah, I mean, I think the video is excellent. And then it just got me thinking about, well, are we in the golden age or golden era of mountain biking? And it's funny, Jeff, cause you had mentioned that, uh, Greg and Aaron had a podcast episode around 2017 and then going back to 2014 when that was still a question. And it's like, we keep making really, really good progress with, um, with mountain bikes themselves. I wouldn't say we're necessarily in a golden era just yet. Cause I, I think that the industry and, um, in trail access as a whole still has a lot of room to grow. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, you know, hearing that we, like we we're all familiar with that idea or that term, like a golden age. And 
I actually looked it up because I was like, where does that even come from? And, you know, it's actually from, I guess, from the Greeks, like a long, long time ago, they talked about the golden age and it was always like a time in the past, right? So even like saying we're currently in a golden age is like kind of weird. And, and like you said, the video actually sets it up correctly, right? Like you're supposed to be looking back and saying like that was the golden age, um, <laughs> rather than saying we're in it. And yeah, that podcast, I went back and it, it should still be available, um, online if people want to go back and listen for, you know, sort of a blast from the past time capsule look at what we were talking about, uh, three years ago, actually a little more than three years ago. But yeah, even then, I think there was a lot of debate about whether we were in a golden age or not. And that maybe for mountain biking, you know, if we're looking right now and we're saying what, what was the golden age, you know, I, I would say maybe the 1990s. Jero, you've been riding for a while. I mean, what, what's your take on that? Are we, are we at our best right now or was there like maybe another time that that could rival sort of where we're at? It's a, yeah, it's a fun question. I think I would kind of echo Matt's point that it about trail access, it depends a little bit on where you live and what bike you have or can afford. Like, yeah, our bikes are super amazing, but you know, we don't all have a new specialized stump jumper Evo. So (laughs) it depends. Uh, (laughs) It would be nice. Yeah, totally. It'd be really nice. I feel like uh, this is, I'm going to be a bit of a pain, but I feel like we're (laughs) on the precipice of a golden age. I feel like bikes are finally to the point where they don't seem to need massive changes. Like we're not making bikes that are basically just road bikes with suspension anymore. We're making really focused bikes and building trails that are for like speed and specific riding styles. And I think the next 10 years, uh, assuming we don't have any huge natural disasters will be even better. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. The best is still to come. I like it. And you're an optimist. Yeah. Cause I, I think that, well, to continue a little bit, like, like you said, I mean, these bikes are outstanding right now and I think they're a lot more affordable than they ever have been too. And they continue to get more affordable and more attainable, you know, and you have stores like REI that are, are making like decent mountain bikes now that, you know, I mean, most people are going to feel a lot more comfortable, I think, walking into an REI and looking at mountain bikes there versus like walking into like a local bike shop and being like, Oh my God, like I don't have four (laughs) grand to spend. Um, you know, and, and then like the whole trail access things, like there's still places like the Midwest are, are now seeing like more of a boom in, in mountain bike trails to where, you know, they haven't had a lot of access traditionally. And you look at like Elliot Jackson's grow cycling foundation and, you know, just starting putting like pump tracks, like dirt pump tracks in, in cities and urban areas for people who maybe haven't had that before. So yeah, I mean, I think things like that will, um, definitely broaden the industry a lot more and bring a lot more people into Yeah, for sure. That's a good point. And since we picked on the stump jumper, uh, (laughs) there is a, there is an alloy version of the new bike for 3,600 bucks. So it's not that, uh, yeah, it's, it's also in some ways in that range of like a good starter bike. Um, yeah, that a lot of folks could afford. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Right. Yeah. Jero, you, you make a good point that like the bikes, you know, especially at the super high end, we're not seeing like big changes to them, but 
What we are seeing, as kind of Matt alluded to, is that at the lower, like more affordable end, those bikes are making like leaps and bounds changes, you know, in terms of like totally. the tech that was the hot stuff like two or three years ago. Now you can get it and it's, it's much more affordable. So, yeah. And, and that too, you're seeing it with this, you know, coronavirus induced sort of mountain bike boom where everybody seems to be like, ah, I'm, you know, I've got some time now and, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to get a mountain bike. And so, yeah, maybe we'll, we will look back at this and see this sort of little boomlet, uh, that was perfectly timed with all the stuff that's going on in the world and, and say, wow, yeah, mountain biking like really took off in, in 2020. Yeah. So Jeff, the last time when, uh, when this question popped up in the podcast in 2017, do you think three years later it is more golden than it, than it was before? (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I mean, yeah, I was looking back at it just before this and like most of the things we were talking about, like we could say those today and it would still be mostly valid. Like I don't think we've seen a lot of changes. And so, yeah, maybe it is a bit of a plateau and I don't know. Yeah. We'll talk about more of the stuff that's happening right now. I mean, what do you guys think? Do you think Matt, that, that there has been a lot of change in the last three years. I mean, you've been riding for, for how long now? Uh, probably like eight years. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, have you, have you felt like since you started that, that there's been like a really noticeable change? Yeah. Yeah. I would say so. I mean, I kind of started on the cusp of like when tubeless was actually starting to become a thing and, um, one by drivetrains and dropper posts and all that. So the technology definitely to where a lot of that was just being introduced when I was starting and now it's pretty standard. Mm-hmm. And I would say it, at least in my state too, like mountain bike optimized trails and in my area, you know, I mean, Colorado has always been known for mountain biking, but the idea of like mountain bike optimized trails is like caught on very slowly, um, in a lot of areas around Colorado and they're starting to catch on a lot more as well. And not, not just in Colorado, but I mean, all over the place too. So, you know, I mean, things like that economic studies that have been done around bike tourism and recreational tourism that are, you know, being used as, as an example to, to argue why trails are a, a good thing to introduce into other smaller economies that could use that boost. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause we did talk about that three years ago about how, you know, communities were finally recognizing the, the tourism value of mountain biking. And so, yeah, now three years later, a lot of these projects that were conceived back then are actually coming online. And, you know, every month we do this sort of roundup of new trails that are opening, um, really all around the world. And I was just looking, getting ready for the one, uh, for October this year. And there were like, just just in October, there were two massive new trails and trail systems built in Australia. Like Australia seems to be really on board with this idea and and using trails to transform communities. I think, and all of these projects are like multi million dollar projects, and we would not have seen that. I mean, even five years ago, we wouldn't have seen that kind of investment in mountain biking. So that's definitely cool to see, and and it you know, trail building, my goodness, it takes so much time. Like <laughs> I'm, I get frustrated with that personally, like, um, you know, at the local level, 
Uh, but, but we are seeing that, that that stuff is finally coming to fruition, which is really cool. So let's talk about bikes. Uh, there's been some stuff in the news here lately about mountain bikes getting even better. I mean, we, I think we would all say mountain bikes are really awesome right now. And it's hard to imagine how we could make them even any better. Uh, but one company that is working on that idea is Cascade Components and Jero. You uh, talked with some folks at the company. Um, tell us a little bit about what they do, what their product is, and sort of what the idea is behind that. So I spoke with Jimmy, who's the lead engineer. He started the whole project, and I think he's kind of running the company now. Um, and his his idea was essentially to take the bikes that he really likes, so they only work with bikes that they think are already really great, and... Uh, change the suspension a bit to make them work for different use cases uh, or work with different shock platforms. So, um, for example, one of the bikes that he worked with, um, I can't remember exactly what model of Santa Cruz it was, but he made the, with with the links that he makes, so they design, uh, yeah, to back up, they design links out of aluminum to change the progression curve of the suspension. And oftentimes that also increases the travel, but that's not really the point. The point <laughs> is to mess with the curve. Right. Although that's what, that's what, you know, you talk to any mountain biker and they're like more travel, more travel. So I'm sure that's a selling point for them, but right. Not the, not the intention. Yeah. So it often boosts travel and also lengthens the chain stays, which is going to make this more progressive bike a little bit, um, you know, it's going to give it a touch more leverage and at the same time, make it a little more stable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, while with that more progressive platform, you're going to be able to ride it a little bit harder and maybe use a coil shock if that's what you're going for. It depends on the bike, but a lot of the larger bikes kind of that's a bit of the focus is to allow people to put a coil on a more linear platform. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, reading through that, it seemed like a lot of the linkages that they do have are they're for newer bikes too. I mean, like you said, they pick bikes that, that they like um, and try to enhance them in some way or, or just really give it a different ride feel. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people who buy, yeah. like, for example, the Santa Cruz tall boy, like they buy it cause they really like it and they like how it rides while others maybe are looking for a slightly different feel. But yeah, is this something that, that is available for people with like late model bikes? I mean, it seems like that would be an opportunity as well, where you're like, well, I've had this bike like three or four years, but yeah, maybe, maybe would a linkage allow you to like get a little more life out of it or like modernize sort of an older bike? Uh, at the moment, I think there's only, maybe there's only one bike that they've got two different, you know, they got a link for the V3 and the V4 of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, mostly it is newer bikes. And at the moment, because they've got so many requests, it's a bit of a convenience sample. So Mm -hmm. they're based in Everett, Washington, and they make links or they test bikes and see if they want to make a link for bikes that they have available. So they can get obviously Kona, Transition, Evil, bikes that are local to them pretty easily. So those are mainly the bikes they have. And then Jimmy, the owner rides mostly Santa Cruz bikes. So he makes links for his own bikes and sells those as well. (laughs) Yeah. Nice. Has anybody ever really done this before? I mean, have people made links to kind of customize your kinematics? Yeah, there, 
Yeah, there have been a couple examples in the past. These guys seem to be doing it on a bit higher, at least production-wise, higher level. But yeah, it's happened in the past. And there are other companies that do it here and there, like make a slightly different link for different bikes. I mean, there's also, uh, to go back to the Stump Jumper Evo, you can get a different link for that bike and run it uh, mullet. And, and that, you know, you can get that straight from Specialized. So. Right, yeah. Yeah, there's different options like that. But I think this is, yeah, that's a good point. I think this is the first example of a company that's really like, this is what they do. It's their main focus, and they're trying to cover as many bikes as they can. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, because most people, they're going to, you know, if they buy a bike and want to upgrade, they're going to upgrade every single part around (laughs) the frame, you know, and this is like, more of an opportunity to really customize like the engine, so to speak, to like tune what the frame actually does, you know? Yep. Totally. Yeah. And it's, you know, to your point too, it's not an inexpensive upgrade. I mean, these links are like 300 bucks. So it's, I think it's for somebody who really loves their bike and they're like, I would like to try something a little bit different, but I don't want to change the bike. Um, yeah. Or they want exactly what Jimmy's making and they, they go for that. So, yeah. Yeah. I was browsing, uh, my, one of my buddies, he lives up in Oregon. He, he's trying to get into mountain biking and, uh, he's like, Oh man, like these transitions look really cool. And so I was looking actually last night through a bunch of, uh, used bike listings for transitions and a lot of them, um, like quite a few actually had those cascade links on there. So they must be pretty popular with, uh, yeah, with the crowd up there. So sweet. Interesting. Yeah, one of the sort of surprising uh, things to note about these is that uh, some of the brands actually say that if you have one of these aftermarket links on, it voids your warranty, uh, which is is kind of like scary sounding. But but yeah, Juro, is there like is there a risk that you're going to damage your frame by putting something like that on, or is this more just like legal folks getting involved? In your opinion. Uh, I think it might be the latter. A lot of the brands from what, so I only know what Jimmy told me. I didn't contact brands around this one, but he said that a lot of the brands that he's contacted, they say, as long as the break wasn't caused by the link, so your, your chain stir, chain stay breaks or something, as long as it's not clearly caused by the link, which often it's not, there's still warranty the frame. I believe he said that Santa Cruz was the only company that said outright for sure if you put this link on your bike, the warranty's void. Interesting. So, I mean, and it's not the only product, right, that voids your warranty. Like threading your steer tube for a one-up uh, tool also voids your fork warranty. So there's a lot of things like that. Yeah. Interesting. Well. In addition to bikes, we kind of mentioned that this idea of a golden age kind of touches on trail building as well. And one of the products that um, a lot of readers seem to be really interested in learning about over the last couple of weeks is a product from a company actually in Italy where you're at, Giro, uh, called Easy Pump Track. And this product, if you didn't see it on the site, it's basically a set of like cardboard templates that you can order from the easy pump track folks and you have it shipped. It's like a ton of cardboard. This isn't like, you know, you just get like, you know, something from Amazon delivered to your porch. This is like a stack that comes on pallets. Um, but you basically put the cardboard together and then fill it in with dirt to create a pump track. And 
basically the the guys can do any design you want so you you know you give them kind of your parameters like this is the area i have this is how many like berms and rollers and various things i want and they create all the templates for it and so again you know you don't have to know a lot about building a pump track you you know in terms of shaping it there's still a lot of work involved matt what do you what do you think about this is this like an idea that maybe is gonna take off or or is it is it kind of a a gimmicky type thing in your opinion i don't know so i guess i didn't realize that you could sort of give them um kind of idea of like the area and everything you're looking for i mean there's definitely people out there who have um, a little plot of property and want to build trails on it so something like that i mean if you've kind of got the money i mean i've talked to trail builders who do private contracting for people who want to trail on their property and um maybe this is kind of a way to save a little bit of money like you're looking to go that route and but i'm assuming like if you're asking them to design uh around a given area it's still going to be a lot of money and then yeah shipping and then the amount of cardboard it takes <laughs> and then the amount of dirt that it takes also i mean i mean did they say like the cost at all around the product? No. Yeah. They're, they're pretty tight lipped about the cost and I'm sure they would tell you it depends on right. How big and how much, how involved they are in terms of the design. Um, and it sounds like they can even consult, they can like come out and help you assemble it with your project. I mean, initially I was stoked cause you know, we've got, we've got a decent sized backyard and have been thinking like, Oh, it'd be cool to have a pump track back there. And, you know, we've kind of just like messed around with shovels and built, you know, small little features and things to play on. Um, and so, yeah, when I saw this, I was like, sweet, like a mail order pump track. But then <laughs> looking into it, I mean, the biggest hurdle for, for me that I, I found is just access to enough dirt. I mean, they were saying that one, like doing a basically like 180 degree sort of berm is would take like some like two truckloads of dirt is what I calculated. And yeah, I mean, we're not talking pickup trucks. I mean like, you know, dirt hauling trucks. And I remember talking to Eric Porter, maybe it was from one of his videos um, where he was showing his sort of backyard setup. And I think he said he had 15 truckloads of dirt or something delivered at some point. And so, yeah, I mean, it seems like the biggest hurdle is just, it's just getting the dirt. And then obviously there's a lot of labor involved in like moving it around. But again, I mean, depending where you are, you know, you may not have access to people who know how to build like a fun bike trail. You know, I mean, there's probably like landscape guys you could hire that <laughs> know how to get dirt and move dirt, but they don't know how to make a sweet pump track. And so I guess if you're in that situation, then maybe, maybe this is a good solution. Yeah, it'll save somebody some money somewhere, but um, I mean, that's a, you're going to have a sore back after filling it with dirt for hours on end. Yeah. 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 And it's the uh, cardboard is supposed to break down over time, but I'm curious what kind of glue they use to hold it together. Cause I don't know. Hmm. I mean, it probably depends on where you live, how much you want, like weird toxic epoxy in your soil at the end of the day i don't know that's a good question i mean it looks kind of like it's cut out and like you know you kind of like slide it together you know how it's slotted and i don't know yeah there wasn't a lot of detail i definitely have <laughs> a lot of questions and that that is a good one 
but yeah, maybe one day, maybe one day we'll have mail order pump tracks. So another part of sort of this idea of golden age of mountain biking is, is sort of the culture of mountain biking for lack of a better term. And racing has always been a big part of the culture, you know, and when we had this discussion a few years ago with, with, uh, Aaron and Greg, you know, one of the things we talked about was like, well, was the 1990s, maybe that was the golden age of mountain biking. And the reason that we argued was that racing was huge back then. I mean, mountain bike racing, it was new and exciting. And, you know, the Olympics, 1996 was the first year that mountain biking was in the Olympics. You know, it was just that popular. So this year has been weird, though, <laughs> in terms of racing uh, with coronavirus and everything. And here toward the end of the year, this fall, we actually were finally able to get some of these like world level races to happen. And Jero, you're well situated where you are to actually um, have been to some of these races. The EWS held, what was it two or three uh, events in Italy this year? Yeah, it was three. So we made it to the Zermatt race in Switzerland. And then there were two in Liguria in Italy, right next to each other. So one in Pietro and then one in Finale. And uh, yeah, totally different vibe this year, for sure. Um, there was <laughs> yeah. no like pit party, a lot less fanfare and fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, apart from the race in Zermatt just being soaking wet and super cold and almost canceled, all of the races really just had this kind of like very sterile and kind of scared feeling to them. <laughs> you know, everybody having to wear a mask and getting our temperature taken to go in and out of the pits. And um, all the athletes like normally would be together eating dinner, drinking beers, whatever, in town the night before, the night after. There was really none of that like community vibe. Yeah. Yeah, and it just, the celebration wasn't there, which was kind of weird, but the racing happened um, with a few fewer athletes, mm -hmm. uh, but it was, it was good racing. I mean, it looked from what I've seen, it looked just as fast and exciting as, as usual. Um, yeah, it was, it was cool to watch. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of changes, a lot of different things this year. And so like for starters, were spectators allowed at the races that you went to? They weren't. So all the races have, um, there's a practice day the day before, or sometimes I think in one case, two days before. So the racers get to see the tracks in a specific order. And it's also timed, um, one time and the tracks weren't released until then. So they, nobody had, including the locals allegedly had no idea where <laughs> the race was going to be. Mm -hmm. Um, in Pietro and Finale, everybody knows the trails well enough that if they see a trail crew cleaning the trail right before the race, they know it's going to be in the race, but <laughs> right. Are there so many trails too, that you just can't possibly know all of them? Like there's going to be some stage where you're like, wow, I've never ridden this or I'm not familiar with this. Or, I mean, if you're a local, you should know every trail that's out there, right? Yeah. Well, yes. I think for people who live there, for sure, they know it really well. Mm -hmm. Last year, last fall, there was a really intense storm and a bunch of flooding that destroyed a ton of trails. Mm. And a lot of them haven't been rebuilt. So the trails in Finale and Pietra are kind of cut in half. At, eh, not quite half, but they're cut down at the moment. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, there's like an intense amount of work that needs to happen. 
and crews aren't really able to go out in mass and do that work. So it's, yeah, it's been difficult for sure. Huh. Interesting. Well, with the athletes too, I mean, most of them haven't really had a chance to race. I mean, some of these were their first races, um, of the year. I mean, maybe they had some early ones in the spring before things got shut down, but was there like a sense that there was this like pent up energy and people were really stoked to, to be out on the course or were they being a little more cautious or I don't know, subdued kind of given the mood? Uh, the athletes I spoke with all seemed really excited to be racing. They were like, Hey, we get to like do our job and show our sponsors that, you know, we, we worked hard and it was worth something for them to pay us. And yeah, I think, I mean, everybody sounded excited to be there, even in Zermatt where it was just like, I don't know, I wouldn't, I didn't really want to go outside and do anything, let alone ride a bike. Um, it was it was the worst race conditions I think I've ever seen. And I raced for a long time in Oregon. So I think that's saying something. <laughs> um, and I think Jesse Melamed's win there is really impressive because he's kind of joked and talked a few times about how he really doesn't like there. Those are not his favorite trails. Mm-hmm. It's not his favorite trail style. Um, it is a lot of old hiking paths and it's, um, a bunch the, almost all of the trails have these like, 180 degree turns like kind of one after the other and they're super steep and if you don't make them just right it's a long way to fall (laughs) and so and it's some of them are like it's rocky and messy enough you can't just skid you have to nose pivot and so it's yeah it's not everybody's favorite way to ride um and so it was like extra impressive that he won that race yeah he had well uh, was it last year he had i think it was last year just bad luck with injuries and trying to get back in the flow and still getting injured. So yeah. Yeah. He had an impressive, if short season this year, it was cool. Matt, have you really been following the races here this year? I know some of the world cup races, we weren't able to watch them live here in the U S um, which is kind of a bummer, but yeah. What's your take on racing this year? Yeah. I, I think it was just world champs that we couldn't watch because they had some weird deal with, NBC. So yeah, broadcast rights that. So it's like you had to have some NBC all cycling access pass. So basically you had to be a huge Tour de France fan to also watch World Cup. But yeah, I watched Maribor and then Lusa Portugal is this weekend too. So I think they're doing the double header again this weekend where it's like they race, uh, well, they practice and qualify on a Friday and then they race on a Saturday and then they basically change the course and do it again uh, Sunday, right? Or No, I guess it, it would have been a day before. So they had a race on Friday, practice qualifications on Thursday, and then practice qualifications Saturday, race Sunday. But no, I, like, I mean, it's been awesome to watch. And American racers were able to go to Maribor, which there were a lot of Americans that I don't think made it to, um, uh, to race in the EWS for whatever reason. So uh, yeah, it was kind of cool. Definitely a little weird without there. There's not really any spectators on, on the track. There's like a few in areas. So it, it just sounds like dead quiet in a lot of spots <laughs> where they're racing, which is different, but it's still cool to watch. So yeah, I've been digging it. Yeah. Yeah. The, the helmet cams have been kind of cool for that same reason though. Cause you can actually hear the person's bike. 
Mm-hmm. So when somebody does post their like helmet cam from the race, it's kind of cool because there's no spectator sound to muffle everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a raw video, but totally <laughs> way yeah. more on the limits. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, let's take a break from the news here and do a little segment called "Best Ride, Worst Ride," and. So the idea here is to talk about some of the rides we've been doing lately, locally or traveling. Um, I know Matt's been able to get out and travel a little bit this summer, but yeah, Matt, why don't you start it off? What's, what's been your best ride in the last month or so? Uh, let's see. So when it comes to mind for me was, I think it was two weeks ago now that, yeah, we've got snow on the ground here and it's like 20 degrees. So Two weeks ago, everything was peachy and dry and not everything. There's a lot of wildfires. <laughs> a little too dry. Yeah. But no, I, I went to a local trail uh, called Floyd Hill with a buddy and did one loop and then kind of went back up to the top for this main downhill and just ran into another rider, started chatting him up and ended up uh, doing the descent together and stopped at the... There's one feature out there. It's just kind of like this big wall, basically just a big rock roll. It's, I don't know, maybe like 10 or 15 feet total. But it's awkward because you you kind of go up this lip and then you drop into it. And then while you're on the wall, you have to pivot and change directions. And then once you're coming down, it's like you're sighting, you're landing and your exit. And I did it a couple times last year. Uh, yeah, when the trail opened. And I think it was just because I had spent a lot of time in BC last year and I was used to riding walls like that but this whole summer it's kind of freaked me out and so I hadn't done it yet and so yeah my buddy ended up doing it and yeah just ended up feeling good and 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 did it again and so it was kind of nice to do it again and get that yeah I mean that fear out of my head and just accomplish it again so yeah that was a good feeling at the end of the ride yeah sweet you're feeling pretty good with your fitness this year it took a little while to get back but yeah, it definitely not um, as fit as I was last year either, but I've been riding several times a week. And so, yeah, you can do that. My endurance is definitely not as good for longer all-day rides, but still get it done. Just, yeah, it, it definitely took or took a, a lot longer to get back this year. Yeah. Jarrah, this is probably a hard question for you, but what's been your best ride? Which ones stand out the most of all the awesome rides that you seem to do all the time? <laughs> Okay. I think some of my funnest rides this year were I took a vacation uh, and a week of working up in La Tuile, which is just north of us, about an hour and a half. And the trails there are just really fun. It's all super challenging. Nothing, uh, no tricky rock moves, but <laughs> it's just steep and steep and fast and rough. And it's it's really fun. And I was on the right bike, so everything was fit together well. And, and it was a uh, was a really good time. I'd, I'll probably go back there next year for vacation or somewhere near there. Just I really enjoy that place. Yeah, especially if we're staying in Italy. It's it's one of the it's probably my favorite park. Mm. Um, Is that where you filmed the specialized enduro review that you did? Yeah, those trails look so so gnarly. Yeah, and that's the they get gnarlier, but the camera was like just a bumbly mess at the bottom so i didn't use any of that stuff <laughs> too much even for the camera yeah i mean so i talked with the trail builder there too and he said that 
they really built all of the trails for the EWS and they started building trails and kind of cleaning old trails right around the beginning of the EWS. So now, uh, I believe it's next year, they're supposed to have their first blue trail um, that'll go top to bottom. So right now there's a little flow trail at the top, but like if kids go up there and ride it, they kind of have to ride the dirt road back down. So <laughs> so th- their first blue trail, are there any green trails? So it's, it, is it all expert? Uh, well, they have a little bit of a different like grading system, but yeah, it's like red, black, double black. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, what's red? Red is advanced or? Red is, yeah, it's, it, yeah, it's just like, it's a black trail that's not quite as scary, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I'm it's not like sure dark, exactly dark what blue. they want to say. They're just, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah. Red, red seems angry. Seems like really like watch out. That should be at the top, in my opinion. Maybe it should be at the top. It's a warning. Yeah. It's like a stop sign. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah, actually, a lot of the red trails they have are, like, closer. I mean, you could make flow out of them, and sometimes they have flow sections. Um, it's all totally natural, though. It's like, if there's flow, it's because there's not trees and rocks there, not because they made it. Yeah, and your video, too, I mean, I guess is a testament to that bike and just modern enduro bikes in general. But, I mean, it looked it looked like you were able to find some flow despite all those rocks. I mean, it's kind of, I guess that's what suspension's for, right? Yeah, I mean, that, that enduro is amazing, the specialized enduro, like that thing. It definitely gives you the magic carpet feel, to use the, <laughs> use the overused phrase. Um, and I rode the... Let's see, the NS Define 160 up there as well, and uh, the Santa Cruz uh, Mega Tower. And yeah, it was, those were the right bikes for sure. I mean, yeah. it was part of what made it fun, just being on super capable bikes that were made for that kind of trail. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, for me, I would say one of the, one of the best rides I've had recently um, was at a relatively new trail that opened up in the Atlanta area called Brown's Mill. And this isn't, this is not a rocky trail or an advanced trail. It's actually complete opposite. It's a beginner level trail that's, you know, designed to be really flowy, not a lot of elevation, which made it great to bring the family to bring, you know, I've got a seven year old and an 11 year old. Um, and we were all able to ride this trail and have a good time. It was a good day out on the bikes. You know, the, the hills, you know, kids, at least my kids, they hate climbing. I mean, and I guess adults do too, right? Like we don't, that's why we invented e-bikes and, and other, and ski lifts and all kinds of stuff. Cause yeah, who wants to climb? So yeah, it's, it was a cool thing. And even in here in Georgia, there aren't a lot of, trails like that where you know there aren't hills that are going to be just sort of like crushing to someone who's just starting out with mountain biking you know and so yeah it was a really good day really good ride out there um and a good good place to to bring the family or, or to introduce people you know if i had somebody like a friend who's like hey i heard you're into mountain biking i'd like to try that like that would be a trail i would take them to for sure was that your wellness Wednesday ride last week? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. They, yeah. Our local school district, uh, you know, is doing virtual still. 
And on Wednesdays, the kids basically get a day off. They call it Wellness Wednesday. Um, you know, they give them like a little 30 minute talk on, you know, mental health or whatever. And then, yeah, they got the rest of the day. So yeah, we, we took advantage and went mountain biking for our wellness and yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. So they got like the best PE class possible instead. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. That's a good point. PE. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So what about the flip side to that, Matt, you have a worst ride in mind recently where things just didn't go right for you on the trail? Yeah. Um, uh, much different trail than Floyd Hill just at, uh, at Green Mountain. I mean, I think there's like 800 feet of climbing from the bottom to the top. So it's, it's all pretty moderate. Like it's a good fitness loop and met a buddy there. And, uh, I mean, he usually just like, he's a fast rider. And so I was in front cause he was on his gravel bike and we totally should have flipped like thinking about it now because <laughs> he's way faster than me still. And so, I mean, I was trying to pedal and not slow him down and everything, but I, you know, it's just one of those rides where you feel like your, your heart's pumping over time, like your lungs aren't opening up and you just kind of feel like hell, like trying to pedal <laughs> up to the top. Yeah. So I think it was more than I mentally expected and it was just not, not a good climbing feeling mm-hmm. on the flip side, like. I broke a bunch of PRs on oh, the wow. way uphill. So yeah, I mean, it's kind of like that interview question. Like what's your, <laughs> what's your biggest weakness? And you turn it into a positive. So <laughs> I guess that's like, it's a bad climb, but I broke some PRs. Uh, but then, you know, we ended up splitting off and it's going to go downhill. And I really like this trail. And uh, I just felt like I had like two left handlebars. Like I couldn't, ride at all for whatever reason. So left it all on the climb, man. Sounds like I did. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) So that was it. Yeah. I mean, it was like not a great feeling climbing and then being excited to go down you're like, all right, I can't do this either today. So whatever, go shower. And yeah, I've ridden green mountain a few times and that trail is, it is a tough one. Like Cause it is so exposed. Like you can, like you're sitting at the parking lot at the bottom, you can see the top. I mean, mentally that's just so like, uh, like it looks close, but then you get into it and you're like, Oh my gosh, when will this climb end? And then, yeah, I, I could definitely see, see your frustration. Yeah. For not being a technical trail by any means, like it's still kind of steep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I can't imagine too. I mean, was it, what was the temperature like, like, I, I cannot imagine riding that in the summer when the the sun is just beating down on you or Yeah. Yeah, there I mean there's not a tree on the whole thing. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Uh, so Jerrell, what about you? What uh what bad rides have you had, if any? Seems like you're you're always stoked to get out. I don't I don't think I've had any bad rides necessarily. I had some broken bike parts and things that could have made the ride bad, but Um, I would say that overall, like to look at the season and the rides, they were all just kind of too short. Like I, I had a lot of big plans to go bikepacking and have some like genuine all day in the saddle kind of rides. And, um, yeah, Corona just didn't want me to do that. So yeah, there's just too many limitations and, um, you know, lots of stuff going on with family and like, just, yeah, didn't work out. So Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If there's a, if there's gotta be a downside, the rides were all not quite long enough. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think we all kind of feel that way too, that, you know, most of us have been forced to ride more locally. And so depending on what trails you have, I mean, even if you have great trails, you're going to get tired of riding the ones that are close to you. And yeah, yeah for sure. That is a challenge for me. Oh man, I've, I've stuck very local for a lot of my rides this summer and, and still into this month. And for starters, one ride I had was just like, just spiderweb city. Like, I guess that it's this time of year here. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not like scared of bugs or, you know, a few spider webs here or there, like not a problem. I have no problem brushing that off, but this was just like relentless. Like nobody had ridden these trails in who knows how long. And it was like every, every corner there was a spider web. And after a while, man, it just, it broke me down. I was like, I can't do, <laughs> I can't do this anymore. I have to get out of here. Did you have some spiders on you when you got home? Oh yeah. Yeah. Big ones too. Yeah, um, really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously? Sure. Yeah. They're, oh, they're huge, huge spiders that make these webs. I mean, and these webs are the ones that, I don't know, they're probably at least like two or three feet on either side. So yeah, we're talking four to nine square feet of spider web. And you know, the whole thing just, just gets on your helmet. It gets in your bars. Like my cables were just, you know, covered in webs and different spiders crawling around and yeah. And that was one that I cut the ride short only because of spider web. <laughs> like it wasn't like I was tired or I had to go home or anything. It's just like that. I couldn't do it anymore. You got stung by a pretty funky looking little bug this year, right? Yeah, I did. It wasn't mountain biker related, but for those who have them, there's this caterpillar called the saddleback caterpillar and they look really weird. Don't touch them because their sting is worse than a bee sting. Uh, look it up if you haven't seen them before, but yeah. And then also kind of on this same ride route, there's this like single track trail, which parallels like a paved sort of cycling, you know, multi-use path that had been built. I think it's fairly new and I've been enjoying, you know, using that instead of the path to kind of get off the pavement for a little while. But somebody in the area keeps putting sticks and logs and things to like try to block the single track off. And, you know, the first couple of times, uh, you know, I was mildly annoyed, but man, this last, I went out for a ride Friday morning, like an early ride, you know, before sunrise got up and went out and man, I don't know. I just, I have, I'd had enough, like <laughs> this, these sticks being placed over the trail and, yeah, just, it kind of ruined the whole ride for me, which was a bummer. And I'm really bummed because that's why the person is putting the stuff there is they want to, they want to get to me and, and they did it. And that was, <laughs> that really made me mad. Yeah. That's not cool. Huh. Do you think they think the trail's not open to bikes? Like, is it obviously open and people ride it? Yeah. I mean, it's not an official trail for sure. Like, um, you know, I, I didn't build it, but it's there and a lot of people ride it and, and a lot of families ride it too. You know, I mean, this is a, it's a flat trail, pretty, you know, nothing really technical on it. Um, you know, I would take my kids on it if it was a little closer to home. So yeah, I don't know. I, I 
it's hard to get into the psychology behind that, like why somebody would would not want that happening. But I guess it it happens happens a lot of places. It's not it's not just here. So, all right. So let's get back to the news and talk about e bikes. And e bikes. I mean, you know, it's not like like a big focus for us as journalists or as a publication, but it is one of the newer things within mountain biking. And it, so it does tend to dominate the headlines a little more perhaps than other topics. And one of the things that recently caught my attention was a new bike from Orbea called the rise. And Matt, can you describe that bike a little bit? Tell us sort of maybe what's different about it. Yeah. I mean, it, so if you look at it, I mean, it looks very similar to the Orbea Occam, you know, and this is an e-bike. So, I mean, you can, you can tell there's a motor, uh, down near the bottom bracket, but it's not, it's not that bulbous. And the down tube is a little bit, uh, wider than the Occam's, but again, it looks very streamlined, very clean. And it's also just a very light option too, um, to where, there is now a, a solid rival for the specialized turbo Levo. I feel like the heckler, the Santa Cruz heckler and the turbo Levo have kind of got everybody talking about e-bikes now, whether they wanted to or not. <laughs> um, and once because Santa Cruz made an e-bike after being like the most core mountain bike brand out there mm-hmm. and the turbo Levo also just really trimming the fat off of, of e-bikes and making it very lightweight to where their top end model was like 37 pounds. And I think the top end model for the Orbea rise is what, like 36. So they got them by maybe a pound or so. So yeah, I mean, it's just, again, it's kind of pushing development and making e-bikes lighter, making them look better. I think I told Jarrell last week, I was like, man, that thing looks sweet. Like that is a, a great looking e-bike and a lot of e-bikes are very ugly. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, we're starting to see bikes that are designed first and foremost as an e-bike and it's not just like, Oh, let's take a bike and, you know, throw a battery and a, a motor on it. This is like a holistic approach, which seems interesting. And Jero, like, who do you think a bike like this might appeal to? I mean, you know, they're not saying like, oh, it has the longest battery life or it's got the most powerful motor. They're, in fact, they're saying the opposite. They're saying like, well, you know, we kind of dialed the motor back and it doesn't have a huge battery. So who, who do you think they're kind of targeting with something like that? Yeah. So I have a few friends who are actually talking to me about this bike and saying that they want it. So I was, hmm. I was trying to think through that. And it seems like one kind of target audience is folks who ride a lot and have a muscular bike we call it here or a, a bike and they ride with their friends on their regular bike and then when they go out by themselves and they just want to bust out a whole bunch of laps or like mm-hmm. do some lunch loops and they only have an hour they can go enjoy a bunch more descents if they have this bike and it's not unlike a lot of other e-bikes it's not built up with e-bike parts it's built up with regular trail bike parts which is part of what keeps it so light Mm-hmm. And so it's going to descend more or less like a similarly capable bike without a motor and a battery, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, that's been one of my sort of issues with the e-bikes I've tested is they, they just don't ride the same. I mean, all that extra weight yeah. 
has to be put somewhere. And so that's going to affect how the bike handles. It's going to handle differently than what we're used to and what we enjoy in terms of like ride feel. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's the idea of this is certainly appealing to me. You know, if, if it were possible to have a bike that rides, feels like a normal mountain bike, but has sort of these enhancements, then yeah, that's, it's interesting. It's definitely something to, to consider. Yeah. I mean, if you can take this bike to the bike park and use the battery to get to the top instead of the chairlift, then you're saving yourself a ton of money. I mean, if you consider mm-hmm. like yeah. going to Switzerland, you might be saving yourself a 200 euro lift pass <laughs> and you can still have a regular muscle pedal bike mm-hmm. that you ride whenever you want to and take this bike to the park or maybe once they have a longer travel version of it, take that bike to the park. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're being generous though in saying that maybe this could save money because <laughs> this bike is like, yeah, it's not cheap. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I mean, there are e-bikes. I don't know. You get an electric mountain bike probably for three grand. Maybe there's probably some $3,000 electric mountain bikes, but these start at six, I think, and go up to 10 and, uh, you know, yeah. And, and that's because the components, like you said, they're, they're high end trail bike components. I mean, they're trying to get the lightest, uh, suspension and tires and all that stuff, um, to keep that weight low and to keep that ride feel the same. And so that, that stuff doesn't come cheap. It, I think it is funny that, um, you know, you say it rides more like a normal bike. And so now the, the, the priority for e-bike brand manufacturers is to make e-bikes more like normal bikes <laughs> oh i mean right. it should be like like <laughs> jeff was saying like this i don't know they descend terribly like the ones from the ones that i've tried from a few years ago and granted i haven't written i haven't tested that many e-bikes but like they just feel like they're glued to the ground it's mm-hmm. awful like it's i don't know takes every bit of playfulness out of the bike yeah that makes sense and then right if you have that descending nature that is similar to a regular trail bike and it is lightweight you can save by not putting a um you know as big of a motor as as others and then you've got a lighter weight bike to climb to the top that uses less power because it is lighter and totally yeah it seems like a smart move on our base part yeah and i wonder too if manufacturers and brands are seeing sort of the market differently now i mean when the idea of e-bikes first came up. I mean, I'm sure there was some thought that, well, we could get new people into the sport, you know, people who've never ridden mountain bikes because it was too hard or whatever. But maybe now, I mean, this almost suggests that they're finding, you know, the real customer is people who ride regular mountain bikes, you know, the more of the core rider than the person who has like no sort of basis for comparison. And so, I don't know. Maybe this is, maybe we're, we're seeing a different approach. Yeah. I think it's a good point too. I think like manufacturers are still, um, at least in the U S too, where, uh, maybe they're going to become more standardized where it's not totally out of the norm in Europe. But I mean, it seems like a, these brands are still going to be figuring out who their consumers are, like who's going to buy an e-bike. Is it going to be just that the older crowd who are constantly pegged as e-bike consumers because they're old and their knees hurt or, you know, are, are they going to be opening up to 
you know, our younger consumers going to open up to them too and not really care. They just want to get out and have fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we did some surveys. Um, we've done a number of them over the years. And one of the things that stands out to me is the, the people who are most interested in e-bikes are at the extremes on the age spectrum. You know, there is definitely the older riders. That's the obvious one that we hear about a lot, but younger riders, you know, those who are like 25 and younger are much more open to the idea of an e-bike than sort of this, this middle age rider. And I think, I mean, part of that is they have no preconceived notion of like, what is a mountain bike? Like what makes it special or why, why should I ride one of those? And so, yeah, we're going to see those people getting older and they're much more comfortable with e-bikes. And so they, they could be driving that. Yeah. So here in the U S e-bikes, you know, a big part of the debate seems to be around electric mountain bike access to trails. And there are still a lot of open questions about what does that look like? And sort of, you know, is that going to affect regular mountain bikers? And so here just in the last month or so, um, we've seen several of the really big uh, federal land management agencies coming up with rules or getting close to finalizing rules for e-bikes. And Matt, one of the stories that you have been following and, and covering for single tracks is this policy for the Department of the Interior. What is, what is the Department of the Interior? Who does that include? I mean, it's, yeah, it's basically the overhead department for Bureau of Land Management, for the National Park Service, Fish and Wildlife Service. And I think for mountain bikers, it probably matters most that the BLM is lumped in there. You know, in the uh, Forest Service, falls under the Department of uh, Agriculture. So, yeah, I guess the most recent decision really pertains mostly to the Bureau of Land Management. Uh, I mean, a little bit to the National Park Service, but, I mean, there's not really a whole lot of mountain biking within right. national parks anyway. So I think the decisions in that are interesting, but I don't think they're as relevant to mountain bikers as the ones that fall under the BLM. Yeah. But yeah, the BLM too, we should point out, you know, they manage mostly uh, land in the Western U.S. And that includes some pretty notable mountain bike areas like Moab. A lot of the trails in Moab are on Bureau of Land Management land. Um, and so what, what is this new, like formalized guidance in a nutshell, like what, what's changed or what have they clarified as it uh, pertains to e-bikes? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely a lot in the West. And I mean, Fruta, Moab, um, uh, a lot down in St. George and, and hurricane, I guess it'd be in Nevada and Arizona too. But so last year, I think it was October, the secretary of interior, David Bernhardt was just like, e-bikes are getting the green light federal lands figure it out like this is an executive order we want e-bikes come up with some policies and so now it's like a year later national park service the blm have sort of figured out what that means um i think they're still going to be figuring out what it means because it's basically <laughs> like as a whole classes one two and three have been given the green light but it's still, you know, local districts are going to have decision-making power, um, you know, and basically be able to decide if it is classes one through three that get the green light on their trails. Maybe class one is the only one that works. 
Uh, but then at that extent, they're going to have to go and, and prove why, you know, if we're saying only class one e-bikes can go on this trail, then they have to uh, basically write and argue why they made that decision. Or if there are trails that they don't allow e-bikes on, then they have to make that decision, have some rationale behind it too, to show their superiors why not you, uh, not all classes of e-bikes are why e-bikes aren't allowed on certain trails. Yeah. Yeah. So that makes it a, a really big win for the e-bike advocates. Right. And I mean, essentially, are you saying that all trails are open unless they're closed? I mean, is that effectively what happened? Like I could go today and ride an e-bike pretty much on any BLM land right now or, or trail that's, that's non-motorized. Yeah. I mean, I think that like, that's a good way to put it is that they're open unless they're closed. And so nobody's had a chance to close them yet either. Probably. Right. I mean, yeah. And that's the thing too, with the decision is that they didn't basically the department of interior decided that they didn't need NEPAs or environmental analysis uh, analyses to make this decision because the impact they've equated um, to that of a traditional mountain bike, which I don't think they're far off from. Um, like I think it's a good argument. Um, but at the same time, now all these land managers are going to have to figure out, uh, is it just class one that makes sense on these trails? Um, and in the language, it doesn't necessarily, you know, a, a lot class two are included in, um, and I think the BLM's decision, but at the same time, it also says that you can't use the motor to propel yourself for an extended period of time. Like you have to be pedaling throughout. Um, <clears throat> nobody really knows how they're going to enforce that. Um, yeah, like I, I talked with, uh, I spoke with someone from People for Bikes last week and she seemed to think that a lot of people will, or a lot of lane managers will just say, Hey, like class one is the most applicable in these parks. So, um, yeah, maybe it will just mean a lot more class one access everywhere. Yeah. I mean, hopefully it, like the law basically opens it up to class two and three and E tricycles too, two or three wheel devices. So like, who knows how all that's going to play out. Yeah. Well, Jero, how does that sort of compare to this, the situation in Europe? I mean, is, do they take a similar approach where, you know, unless there's a rule that says you can't ride an e-bike on a trail, uh, then, then it's generally okay to do so? Well, the approach is pretty different here. It depends on the country for sure. Um, I know there are some places, for example, in the Czech Republic where you, on certain trails, you can't ride e-bikes, but Everywhere else I've been, you can ride an e-bike on any trail, any kind of e-bike. Like, there's no rules. There's just trails and you ride bikes on them. Huh. Even one of those, like, cake, like, electric motorcycle things, you could ride that on a trail, you think? I don't know. I don't know what the limit is. Like, there's very little, at least in Italy, I'll speak for the country I live in, there's very little rule making around that like if if you're not riding something with a combustion engine that people are going to call a motorcycle then you can ride it huh. i i haven't seen a single person riding something that wasn't just a normal e-bike like a bike that you have to pedal to make it move and it has two wheels and so i don't i don't think there's an issue and it's i don't know there at the moment, not making laws about things that aren't happening. So, um, 
Yeah, so everybody's just riding e-bikes. I mean, on my regular lunch lap, I'll get passed on legal and unsanctioned trails by multiple e-bikes on the way uphill. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, they're they're super popular among kids, older folks, people my age, like all across the board. People are super mm-hmm. stoked on e-bikes here, and you can ride them wherever you want. We just don't have all this bureaucracy and um, political argument around it. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause yeah, as Americans, I think a lot of times we tend to think like Europe has like way more laws and <laughs> things than we do. But in this area, I guess it's kind of flip-flopped. It depends. And also, I mean, just as a piece of consideration for that discussion, like we also don't have a single forest that hasn't been cut down. Um, you know, there's like a tiny little spot, I think in Poland, but it's going to be cut down soon. Um, <laughs> Can't let it well, stand. All the empires, all the empires have burned down. All the forests, like the the streams, have been redirected. Um, yeah, so I mean, there's there's not a tree in Italy that wasn't intentionally kept safe that hasn't been cut down. So yeah, it's just it's really different. We don't have like the massive forests to protect like you do in the U.S. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to think, too, about, you know, what increased access is going to mean for e-bike sales in the U.S. I mean, like you said, they're much more common in Europe, and perhaps access is part of why they're more popular or more people own them. But there are other factors as well that I think we've discussed before. Matt, what's your take on that? I mean, do you think by having more trails available to people that they're going to be more willing to buy them here? Yeah, I think it'll help. So last week, like the conversation I had with people for bikes, a lot of people don't like them. And and basically, I mean, to describe them like they are a lobbying agency for the bike industry. At the same time, like some of their, you can argue against some of their uh, e-bike efforts and, and whatnot. But at the same time, they do make sense, you know, to where basically like the best way I can put it is you, you can go into a bike shop right now and a lot of bike shops and you can buy an e-bike like, and, and it's legal to do that. Right. Like they pass these consumer um, safety standards to where it is legal to sell by the government. And then you can walk outside of the bike shop with that e-bike and not have a legal place to ride it. Um, and a lot of that is because of like the government doesn't really know what to make of them yet. And obviously they're figuring that out now from my conversation with people for bikes, that was their responsibility is to say, Hey, like these things are being sold. Government allows it. Now there are laws in place that prevent people from riding them. And, you know, if you can educate the government about what an e-bike is, um, the impact of an e-bike potential conflicts, then they can make proper decision-making around what's legal to ride and what's not. Yeah. And I can understand that perspective to the way it played out is, um, I mean, obviously there's still a lot that's really unclear about how all the classes are going to be managed and mm-hmm. what trails are actually going to be open or not. But it, yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the wilderness experience is interesting to think about too, because I think there's an argument that, you know, some of the most beautiful places in America are the hardest to get to. Mm-hmm. And so in achieving that, you know, you, you find yourself being, um, more rewarded by your efforts, right? Mm-hmm. Like 
it takes a lot more effort to get somewhere. It's beautiful. Um, not that many people are, are able to get to it because it is so strenuous mm-hmm. and you have this, this, this fitness level and this, um, this knowledge and know how to get to that. And that makes it a super rewarding, rewarding mm-hmm. thing. So yeah. yeah, I, I do think more people will bike e-bikes now that there are more places to ride them. Um, at the same time, I think beginners are beginners and whether you're buying an e-bike or a regular mountain bike, you can get yourself into an equal amount of trouble <laughs> by just not being prepared at all. Right. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah. Guilty. So the forest service, which is separate from the department of the interior just this week, actually, as we're speaking, uh, they just wrapped up a comment period for their own stab at, you know, adding some clarity to e-bike access, on the trails on the land that they manage and they took kind of a different track, uh, where they, um, first of all, are, are not opening trails by default. Um, trails will need to, uh, you know, go through a formal analysis and public comment period before any of them are open to e-bikes. Um, and then the other thing that's part of their policy, their proposed policy is, to classify e-bikes as motorized vehicles. And, you know, plenty of people have made the argument, you know, if it has a motor, it's motorized, which, you know, there's no argument against that. Um, And so it's kind of an obvious move to put it in the motorized category. Um, And within the motorized category, the Forest Service is proposing carving out a separate category aside from, you know, say motorcycles or ATVs or even passenger vehicles, which I think some of the roads and things that they manage, uh, that's that's a separate category as well. So e-bikes have their own distinction within the motorized category, but they are considered motorized and where this becomes potentially an issue, uh, according to IMBA, is that that if anyone is trying to lobby to have e-bikes allowed on, say, a trail that's currently only open to mountain bikes, a non-motorized trail, um, then that forces the Forest Service to then flip that trail from non-motorized to motorized. Um, and doing so has a lot of implications, uh, one of which is funding that it's more difficult to get funding for motorized trails for building those types of trails and for maintaining them. Um, and so it, it's complicated, you know, <laughs> it's Matt, what's, what's sort of your take on this? I mean, is, is what Imba is saying about this, does that make sense or are there ulterior motives? I mean, it seems like a lot of readers maybe feel like there's an ulterior motive here that Imba you know, secretly is, is pro e-bike or, or they really want to help the e-bike industry. But what, what's sort of your take? I think Imba is, is doing a good job in stepping in stepping in where they need to, in that the language around the change is still fuzzy and the forest service needs to clarify that. I think it's a big leap. And I don't, I don't think that because you're allowing e-bikes on non-motorized trails motorcyclists and ATVers are going to see that and be like, Oh, we can go too." like, I don't think it's going to be as simple as that, but it does create in terms of like legality and the wording around, uh, the changes a potential for that slippery slope to say, these are still motorized vehicles. You know, what's to say that we can't take our, our dirt bikes on this non-motorized trail now too. And that was something that, 
um, the Department of Interior looked like they got right around their decision is that they declassified uh, e-bikes as off-road vehicles. Um, and so they're, you know, they're not then allowing all off-road vehicles to uh, be allowed on, on non-motorized trails too. So, I mean, I think it's just like saying, Hey, like, hold on a second, really make that language as clear as possible. Yeah. This got me thinking about too, like, is a, is an e-bike more similar to a mountain bike or to a motorcycle? You have any thoughts on that, Jero? I mean, I don't know. To me, it's obvious. I'll go ahead and say it. Like, I think it's way closer to a bicycle than it is to a motorcycle, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, having, having, mm-hmm. I've ridden a lot more motorcycles than I have e-bikes. And if I'm, if what I'm looking for is what I would get from a motorcycle, an <laughs> e-bike is terrible. <laughs> like that's, it, it's not comparable in the slightest, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have like the push and the throttle you can't yeah. do. And it's just not even comparable. Like it's not in any way a motorcycle. And also I'm curious if it might be helpful instead of classifying e-bikes as motorized vehicles, mm. why don't they just create another classification and say two wheeled vehicles, bikes that have, that create this much torque, like less than one horsepower, it seems to be the thing that everyone's agreed on are different. Sort of like you can't take a moped with that creates low enough power on the freeway. Kind of the same idea. Like, <laughs> yes, it's a motorized vehicle, but it's completely different and, it's not relevant to compare the two. Like people just want to keep pounding on that, but it's, it's not a motorcycle. It's not really even a motorized vehicle. Like once you ride one, you realize it is completely different. Yes, it has a motor, but it doesn't function even similarly to a motorcycle or even a moped. I mean, cause those, you only have to pedal for a second and then they do all the work for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. I, I keep, I don't know, for some reason I want to keep like thinking about or try to find a parallel to like, uh, electric toothbrushes. Like, you know, like the, you got your analog and you got your motorized toothbrush, but like you still got to do the same amount of work. Like you, you, you still got to like move the thing around and you, you know, it works pretty much the same way. But yeah, I mean, it, I was just trying to like, you know, put down two columns like similarities and differences between motorcycles and and bicycles and like you know a motorcycle is is much heavier it's louder it's much faster it's you know there's just to me it's a lot closer and i think i think what emba is arguing you know they don't seem to be putting out a particular solution um but it seems like one way you could deal with this is like you said, Jero, like have a third category. I mean, maybe just saying something is motorized or it's not motorized. That's not enough. That's not enough like nuance to really capture like what, what's available today. Totally. Yeah. I mean here, for example, we have, we have cars that you can drive when you're first learning to drive and as a smaller motor and you can't drive like a regular car. And that car has a separate class and anybody can drive that car. But if you don't, if you only have a learner's permit, you can't drive any other car, only that one. Huh. And it just has a separate category because it has less power and some other specifics. And yeah, why can't we do that with e-bikes? 
and then just regulate that category as its own category. Yeah. And while we're at it, why can't we take uh, horseback riding out of the non-motorized category? Seems really different to me than, than walking or, <laughs> right. you know, yeah. because it's like, it's not your power. It's an enormous animal that is coming with you uh, or, or is taking you. <laughs> so, yeah, it is, it is kind of comical that we try to stuff everything into two nice and neat categories uh, when maybe they're not that similar. Yeah, it's a little trickier than that. Well, great. This has been fun discussing the latest news in mountain biking. Um, and I'm looking forward to doing this again because there is so much happening in mountain biking. You know, even though it seems like a lot of stuff is maybe on hold or things are, are not moving at the pace that they used to, at least from from my perspective, and I, I think from all of our perspective, there's still a lot to talk about with mountain biking and a lot of cool stuff is happening. And so we'll continue to bring the news uh, through the website, you know, in articles and, and in that format, but also it's good to discuss it as well. So hope you enjoyed it and we'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.